Dark was the day in Egypt. And when I say dark, it was an oppressive darkness. A darkness that one could even feel or sense the, the weight of in some way. A darkness so dark that it was paralyzing. In fact, so dark you couldn't move for fear of what, what they could not see. In this darkness in Egypt, there was no stumbling around because no one could see anyone else. It was a deep, indescribable and unexplainable darkness that really can only be attributed to the supernatural. But not so in Goshen. It defines or defies rather the laws of of the way light and darkness work. Just across the way where the Hebrew slaves camp, things continued as usual. They moved about like they normally did, perhaps even enjoying a much needed rest from slave labor because of the strange and utter darkness that had befallen Egypt. Let's look at the, few, the couple of verses that tell the story in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. What I just read to you and what I just recounted to you is a part of the day of the Lord's judgment on Egypt. But as in many other places in Scripture, what is darkness for those who are under God's judgment is light for those He saves. The day of the Lord is darkness for Egypt, but it is light for the Israelites as God accomplishes His redemptive purposes on their behalf. And the reason I open with that, illust that biblical illustration in light of the text today is because Paul makes a very similar contrast in the text before us today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Remember from last week, Paul spoke of the royal return of Jesus. And, and what did it do? It gave hope and comfort to those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. And then Paul continues to speak of the return of Jesus in our text today, 1 Thessalonians 5. But I think that you will note that Paul changes his phraseology to reference the return of Jesus as the day of the Lord. And it's in light of this day of the Lord that Paul contrasts two groups of people who have different responses to the day of the Lord. And I think that this is where Paul's message is found 
in this passage. So, so that's what I want us to do today. I want us to consider the day of the Lord in light of the contrast between these two groups, those that are in darkness and those that are in the light. But first, before we consider those in the light and then those in darkness, I think that it, we need to understand, first of all, what the day of the Lord is. What does Paul mean when he uses the phrase, the day of the Lord? So Paul changes his phraseology uh, to, to, use this, to use this phrase in reference to the return of Jesus. So in the preceding passages, Paul was speaking about the return of Jesus. And then when he speaks of the day of the Lord, what he is doing is just carrying on that idea. He is still talking about Jesus' return. But as we see in the contrast, the return of Jesus does not give comfort and hope to everyone. Remember last week, it was for the point of giving comfort and hope. But in this text, that's not the point at all. It is not to give comfort to everyone like it gave comfort and hope to those he was pastor Paul was pastorally encouraging last week. So here's the deal. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament phrase. And, and for those of you that study your Bible, you probably recognize that phrase. It commonly refers, uh, commonly uh, comes up in the Old Testament and refers to God's judgment. Places like Joel 2, Amos 5, Zephaniah 1 are all passages that mention the day of the Lord in reference to the judgment of God. And so the Old Testament association of the day of the Lord with God's judgment is carried over into the New Testament, speaking of the final judgment and God's punishment of the wicked. So when the New Testament uses the phrase day of the Lord, there is that aspect of the judgment of God and God's punishment of the wicked. However, we also need to understand in the New Testament that Jesus has already passed through the judgment of God on behalf of all that trust in Him alone for salvation. So the believer looks on the day of the Lord in joyful anticipation, not in fear and dread like those who remain under God's judgment. You see that? You understand that? It refers to God's judgment, but now Jesus has endured God's judgment against sinners, all of those sinners who would believe in Jesus. And so, there's the distinction. There are those who fear the day of the Lord, but there are also those who anticipate the day of the Lord because they have uh, trusted in Jesus who has faced the judgment of God on their behalf. And those that do not fear the day of the Lord is talked about here in 1 Thessalonians as those in the light. Those in the light or the children of the light or sons of the day is the way that Paul describes them. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
So those in the light who are not fearful of the day of the Lord, they know the nature of the Lord's return. They know the nature of the Lord's return. Paul is explicitly addressing, really in this passage, the Thessalonian believers, the children of light. That's who he's addressing. And he says that there's no need to write to them about the times and seasons or about the timing of the return of Jesus because they have already been made aware of the nature of Jesus' return. And this is very... For him to say that you are fully aware of the nature of the return of Jesus is very possibly something that Paul taught them when he was with them in his, uh, in his first ministry there that is recorded in Acts chapter 17. And this would have made sense because the Great Commission is to teach what Jesus commands. And Jesus clearly taught in Matthew 24 about His coming in judgment. And so it's, it's very probable that this is one of the things that Paul addresses in his initial ministry with the Thessalonians. He, taught, he told them about the nature of Jesus' return. He certainly knows that they are fully aware that no one can place a time stamp on the day of the Lord because he says it will come like a thief in the night or unexpectedly. It will come unexpectedly. I don't need to write to you about any date or any season because you are fully aware of the nature of the return of Jesus. It will be unexpected. That is the nature. Also those in the light, they know the nature of the Lord's return, but they also, even though they know that the nature of the Lord's return is unexpected, they are not surprised. And this is somewhat of a, a paradox that the Return of Jesus, for those in the light, they know that it's unexpected, but they are also at the same time not surprised by the day of the Lord. It says that in verse 4 and 5, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. The reason the believers are not surprised by the day of the Lord is not because they have predicted the day or week or year or whatever of the Lord's return. I remember I was thinking of this as I, as I studied this. Um, when I was a child, there was a book that came out. I remembered, I think, my, uh, I think some of my family had it. I almost said who in my family. So I know some in my family had it. I'm just not going to say who. But it was a book called... Uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Well, I was thinking the other day, there's at least 2,023 reasons why, why Jesus could come back at any moment, right? Uh, but, but nonetheless, it's, uh, it, that we haven't predicted, we're not surprised by the day of the Lord, not because we have predicted when He will return, but it's, it's rather what they know about the nature of, of the Lord's return, just as I've already said. But Paul also says they will not be surprised by that day because of who they are. Do you see that? So they won't be surprised because of what they know, but they also won't be surprised because of who they are. Paul says, you won't be surprised by this. Why? Because you are children of the light. You're children of the light. 
So he contrasts those with children of the darkness, and we'll address those in a moment who will be surprised by the coming of the Lord with the children of darkness who are light, rather, who will not be. So this is something that, that is commonly done in the New Testament, very commonly done even by the Apostle Paul, and that is contrasting light with, with darkness in reference to those who are believers and unbelievers, or those who live in sin and those who are redeemed. And, and there is a, a number of passages of Scripture that make that contrast. John, uh, John chapter 3, verse 19, Romans 13, 12, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Ephesians 5, 11, Romans 1, 21, Ephesians 4, 18, Romans 2, 19, Colossians 1, 13, 1 Peter 2, 9, Hebrews 6, 4, Hebrews 10, 32, Ephesians 5, 8, 9, 1 John 1, 6, 1 John 2, 10, you get the point, don't you? It's just, it's just a, a sampling of this very common idea of contrasting light with darkness. Those in the light being those who believe, those who are redeemed, and those in the darkness being those who are still in their sins. But I chose one particular passage to read to you that I haven't mentioned yet, and that's Acts chapter 26, verse 17 and 18, because this is... God's call to the Apostle Paul. I found that outstanding and, and interesting. Listen to what the Lord says to Paul. Delivering, from your from, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this is the way that Paul understood his ministry. And this is the paradigm through which Paul understood the Thessalonian believers. I fulfilled my task to you. I opened your eyes and I turned you away from darkness. And I turned you into light. These Gentile or perhaps predominantly Gentile Thessalonians had been turned from darkness to light. And so this is the distinction that Paul makes between them. So Paul is telling the Thessalonian believers, and, and really all believers by extension, that they don't need to be concerned necessarily with the date of the Lord's return, because they know the nature of the day of the Lord, and because they are children of the light, they will be living in such a way that they will be ready for the day of the Lord whenever the day of the Lord comes. So those in the light then, verses 6 and 8, tell us should be awake, sober, and continuing in the faith. Let's look then. Verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others, but let us keep awake and sober. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul moves from describing who the Thessalonian believers are in Christ. The day will not take you unaware because of who you are, your children of the light. He says that you are children of the day. So he goes from describing who the Thessalonian believers are in Christ 
to exhorting them to conduct their lives in a certain manner. And, and I, if, if you don't get anything out of my part of this series in 1 Thessalonians, I want you to get this. Paul moves from describing who the, Thessalon- who the Thessalonian believers are in Christ to then exhorting them to conduct their lives in a certain manner. I have noted in every sermon I have preached in this series uh, for, through 1 Thessalonians that this is the pattern of Paul in this letter. And in every, every letter he writes. And you've heard me use this phrase and I will use it, use it, use it, use it, use it. The indicative always precedes the imperative. What is true about a person in Christ always comes before how they should live. This is the way that Paul does. This is the way of the New Testament. It isn't do this, do this, do this without ever notifying them who they are in Christ. They are always notified who they are in Christ before they are given commands as to how they should live. And this, I cannot stress the importance of that enough. Paul reminds them of who they are in Christ before he instructs them how they should live. The Thessalonians are children of the light, so they should walk in the light. Did you miss the contrast there? In uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, remember, Paul says, We do not grieve as others do. We do not grieve as, as others do. But then in 5 and 6, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 6, he says, We do not sleep. As others do. So you know who the others are. The others are those who are not in the light. So when we grieve, we grieve as those who have hope because we are expecting the Lord's return. We don't grieve like those who do not have hope. And we do not sleep like those who are in the dark, who sleep, who the day of the Lord will catch off guard. Rather, Paul says... They should do what most people do in the day, especially back in those days when there was no electricity and street lights, and that's to remain awake and sober. As we will see in a moment, this contrast again with those in the darkness who are sleeping and drunk. The exhortation is to be alert and sober-minded. Alert and sober-minded. You are children of the light, so you need to be awake. You need to be alert. You need to be sober-minded. In the New Testament, to be awake, to be alert, to be aware, to be watchful, to be vigilant, uh, to be sober-minded or sober, it carries the idea of exercising moral self-restraint and being clear thinking. This is the alertness or the soberness. And that is that, that talks about uh, when, you're, when you're drunk, you lose the capacity to have full control of your faculties. And so the call, the New Testament call to sobriety or to soberness is to maintain control. It's self-control, uh, to maintain self-restraint. For instance, 1 Peter carries the same idea, and you know this passage of Scripture, it says to be sober-minded and watchful because the adversary, your adversary, the devil, is on the prowl, seeking someone to devour. And so because the devil is on the prowl, the call is be watchful, be alert, be aware, be awake, be sober-minded. 
operate self-restraint. Otherwise, you'll fall prey to the devil. So then, because the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly, those who are in the light should always be living in such a way as to not be caught off guard by that day. Do you see that? And then in verse 8, Paul gives a specific example of what that means for children of the light. What does it mean for children of the light to be sober and awake and alert? Well, he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And this may sound familiar to you if you followed along, or you may can flip back in your notes and see that this same, uh, very similar phraseology, I should say, is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 3. Paul spoke of their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness in hope. Same words. So what Paul is doing is, to, is doing what he has done often in this script in First uh, Thessalonians, and that is tell them or exhort them to continue doing what they are doing. Paul is telling them to continue to live the way they have been living. This time, however, Paul is using a war-like metaphor. In verse in uh, chapter one and verse three, he talks about the labor. Of love, he's talking about in the in the metaphor of work, but in First Thessalonians five eight, he is speaking in terms of battle, preparing yourselves, having on the armor of faith and hope and love, and these are the three chief and abiding attributes of Christians. And Paul is conveying that each of these requires diligence, like work. Or diligence like a warrior in battle. It requires labor. It requires tools. It requires equipping. It requires a breastplate and a helmet. Because this is not a passive thing. And beloved, I want us to hear this message loud and clear. For us to be ready for the day of the Lord is not a passive thing. It's not a passive thing. It requires diligence, watchfulness, sober-mindedness, self-restraint, and alertness. Remaining, for us to remain steadfast in faith, hope, and love is, is labor. It is, a, it is a battle that requires helmets and breastplates. And, and what I want, I want you to understand that we cannot imagine that we are prepared for the day of the Lord because we prayed a prayer when we were 12 or we raised our hand in an, in an evangelistic campaign. No, if we belong to the day, the call of Scripture is, let us walk in the light as He is in the light. If you are not walking in the light and you think that you are in the light, First uh, John says, you have betrayed yourself. Let's do as Romans 13.12 calls us to and put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So those who are in light are also saved. Verse 9 and 10 tell us they are saved by Jesus from God's wrath. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Note, verse 9 begins with for, or because. Those in the light should be alert, sober-minded, and aggressively continuing in the faith because they are saved from God's wrath. Do you see the appropriate order there? They don't live this way so they can be saved from God's wrath. They do it because they are saved from God's wrath. Because you are saved from God's wrath, live in the light. And this, again, cannot be emphasized enough. Those in the light do not fear the day of the Lord because they, because they know the times and seasons of the Lord's return. Rather, the reason they are not fearful is because they have been saved from God's wrath through the death of Jesus. This is how we are not fearful. This is how we can look at the day of the Lord in anticipation. It is because we know that Christ bore our sins at Calvary. Those in the light are ready for the day of the Lord. Not because they have counted a generation backward from the reestablishment of Israel as a nation state. Or because they've lined up the blood moons throughout history to figure out precisely when Jesus will return. But they are saved from God's wrath because Jesus Christ has bore that wrath against them in Himself. He has raised them up with Him in His resurrection. And He has given them power by the Holy Spirit to live sober and alert lives. They have no need for someone to write them about when Jesus will return in salvation and judgment. For by God's grace, especially demonstrated through Christ's atoning sacrifice, they have been saved from God's wrath. And they have been made ready for the Lord's return. And this is beautiful because Paul says that this is true of those who are dead and those who are alive at the coming of the Lord. Hallelujah. And then those in the light continue to encourage and edify one another. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That word build one another up is the same as edify. So Paul ends this section actually in similar fashion to the way he ended the previous section that Dale dealt with last week. He instructs them to encourage one another. This is not to be for those in the light. The coming of the Lord is not to be a dreadful day. I know that some of you grew up like me and you came home to an empty house and you were scared to death that the day of the Lord had come and you had missed it and now you're calling everybody you know and like, oh, right? That's not the intent of this passage of Scripture. This passage of Scripture is to encourage the children of God, not to scare the crud out of them. And Paul says, encourage one another with this. As a matter of fact, you've heard it said before, I'm sure, that the common Christian greeting in the ancient church was, Maranatha, brother, our Lord soon returns. This was not a fearful, this was not a fearful thing. In the last section, Paul pastorally encourages those who grieve 
by telling them that Jesus is returning. And those who have died in the faith will even rise before those who are alive at Jesus' return. And then he reminds them to continue encouraging, continue to encourage one another with those words. And in this section, Paul speaks of those in the light and tells them that since they are saved from God's wrath, the day of the Lord is not a terror to them, but it is a source of encouragement. Therefore, they should continue to encourage one another and build each other up with the truth of the Lord's return as they have been doing. So we say what great courage those in the light have, as we saw last week and this week, as it relates to the day of the Lord. He's not coming in wrath for them, but He's coming in salvation. And they are fully aware of the nature of the Lord's return. And they are steadfastly laboring and battling in faith, hope and love, encouraging and building up their brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's not the only story in 1 Thessalonians 5. And I say with the psalmist in Psalm 1-4, the wicked are not so. Paul contrasts those in light with those in darkness. And it's not a pleasant picture. So those in darkness, he says in verse 3, are unaware and unprepared for the day of the Lord. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Do you hear that? Paul says that sudden destruction is just ahead for those in darkness. But, but here's the tragedy of it. Look how they are acting. They are not alert and sober as those in the light. Rather, they are saying there is peace and security. And I think we will all agree that it is a wonderful thing to be able to say there is peace and security when there is in fact peace and security. But it is a horrid thing to say there is peace and security when sudden and inescapable destruction lie just ahead. And this is the way Paul describes the condition of those in darkness. They are saying with others, this is very likely a common saying throughout the Roman Empire during the Pax Romana, which would have been the period of time when this letter was written. This was a common saying for people to say, there is peace and security in the Roman Empire. Folks were going around saying, there is peace and security without even realizing that this world and all those who reject Jesus are heading headlong into judgment, which will ultimately be culminated at the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord. What a blindness! What a darkness. Not only to be headed for judgment, but to think that you are safe and secure all the while plunging ahead into that dreadful day. Paul uses another metaphor of a woman going into labor to emphasize the suddenness and inescapability of the day of the Lord upon those in darkness. And I think that we understand Times were different then than they are now, especially as it relates to labor and pregnancy. And being pregnant and, and going into labor was, uh, was more dangerous then than it is now. 
There's a multitude of, of folks who passed away during the uh, process of labor. And so what I'm saying is that the imagery of labor pains would have brought fear into the hearts of the hearers. Perhaps recalling those they knew who didn't survive the ordeal. Also, the beginning of labor pains marked the inevitability of the pain and danger of the labor process. And so it speaks to the inevitability of the destruction of those in darkness you are saying there is peace and security, but destruction is coming upon you like it, and it is inescapable like a pregnant woman experiencing labor pains. So those in darkness are unaware and unprepared for the day of the Lord. And Paul also says in verse 7 that those in darkness are drowsy and drunk or sleeping and drunk. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, are drunk at night. It may go without saying here, but Paul is speaking metaphorically using darkness, sleepiness, and drunkenness to describe the spiritual and moral condition of those for whom the day of the Lord will mean wrath and judgment. Unlike those in the light who are watchful, sober-minded, and self-restrained, who will not be surprised by the day of the Lord, those in, those in darkness, they're stumbling around in their own folly and excess like sleepy, drunken people. Like a, like a sentinel, peacefully sleeping and dreaming of home at his wartime post while the enemy raids and pilfers the encampment. Or like a drunk man slurring a happy tune while stumbling in the way of traffic at the peril of his life. So those in darkness are drowsy and drunk. And, and they don't even realize the jeopardy that they are in. Oh, unbeliever, if you are hearing me today, you are in darkness and I implore you, I plead with you, wake up, sober up. I plead this with you before it's too late. Because not only is your life in peril, but your soul is in peril. And tragedy of all tragedies, you may not even realize it. So just as the day of the Lord's judgment loomed large and dark over Egypt in my opening illustration... I think all of us would agree, so it does in our time. For those of us who have no need for date predictions on the times and seasons of the day of the Lord, we can see the dark clouds of judgment gathering and realize that it is inevitable and inescapable. But we are not fearful. But we are encouraged, those of us who are in the light, because just like in Goshen, the day of darkness for those under God's judgment is a day of light for those God intends to save. Those in light are not destined to wrath. But those in darkness, I'm afraid the opposite is true. Unless you repent and believe the gospel that I've preached to you. This morning. I think it would do all of us well 
in light of this passage, to evaluate our lives to ensure we are in the light and not in darkness. How do we know whether we're in the light or dark, you may ask? First, I would say with Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, do you trust in Christ's work at the cross as your only means of being saved from the wrath of God? Then the second question I would ask as you evaluate yourself to know whether you're in the light or in the dark, I would ask, how are you living? Does your life look like those described as in the light in this passage? Or does it look more like those in the dark? Are you careful, watchful, sober-minded, self-restrained? Or do you stumble through life hardly ever giving thought to God except maybe on Sundays if it's convenient? Beloved, how you live and act reveals a great deal about what you truly believe. If you find that your life more closely reveals those in darkness, can I say repent of your drowsiness. Repent of your drunkenness. Trust Jesus to save you. Or trust Jesus to help you. Ask a friend in the church or someone in your small group to help you, to hold you accountable to your profession that you are a child of the day. Evaluate your life. This passage also clearly teaches us to live as those who are in the light. If you are in the light, put on the breastplate of Faith and love and the helmet, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Walk in the light. I, I could not help but think of that famous passage, 1 John 1, 6 and 7, as I thought of those in the light and those in the dark. Listen, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. Now you may be saying, how do we walk in the light then? The passage, this, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 teaches us to walk in the light as children of the light. 1 John 1 teaches us to walk in the light. So how do we walk in the light? And there's a multitude of ways that the Bible teaches us to walk as children of the day, to live as children of the light. But I want to, I want to keep it in the context here because Paul says the Thessalonian believers were children of the light. And he also said in 1 Thessalonians 1.7 that they were an example to all believers. So I think if we are interested in living in the light... Like the Thessalonians, we can use them as an example. So let's just do a quick survey of what we have learned about the Thessalonians who are an example to us, who live in the light, and at least see some of what it means to walk in the light as children of the day. Chapter 1 verse 3 says that they labored in faith, love, and steadfast hope. So walking in the light is laboring in faith, love, and steadfast hope. 
Chapter 2, verse 13 says that they trusted the Word of God as the Word of God. So walking in the light looks like not only trusting the inerrancy of Scripture, but also the sufficiency of Scripture. Trusting the Word of God as the Word of God. If it's the Word of God, certainly sufficient, wouldn't you say? They trusted the Word of God as the Word of God. Chapter 3, verse 6 says that they remained steadfast in faith and love, even in persecution. So walking in the light is to remain steadfast in faith and love. Chapter 4, verse 1 says that they lived in a way that pleased God. So walking in the light looks like living to please the Lord and not man. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says they loved one another. Even those in Macedonia or Christians in other towns. So walking in the light looks like loving each other and loving all of the brethren. So walk in the light then is the command of Scripture. Let us follow the example of the Thessalonian believers and walk in the light of the gospel as children of the day. And then we will always be ready for the Lord's return when He comes on that day in salvation and judgment. We take the Lord's Supper this morning and this passage of Scripture providentially immediately applies to our taking the Lord's Supper. Because here's what's, what happens. The Lord's Supper anticipates the Lord's return. That is part of what we are doing. When we are supping together with the bread and the wine, we are anticipating the day when we will sup with the Lord in unfettered fellowship in the kingdom to come. So, partaking of the bread and wine is looking ahead and anticipating the day of the Lord. And so it is, the Lord's Supper is reserved for. It is held out only to those who are in the light. It is held out only to those who are anticipating with joy the coming of the Lord. Right? There may be those among us today who are not anticipating with joy the day of the Lord. Rather, you are anticipating with fear because you're, you're in the dark. And you're, un, you're unsure. Can I tell you that we would love for you to stay? We hope you stay. And we hope you observe because this is a, a beautiful thing that Christians do regularly is they fellowship with one another, they sup with one another, they partake of the Lord's body in anticipation of His return. But we just ask that you abstain because you cannot anticipate the Lord's return with joy until you confess and repent of your sin and trust Christ alone for salvation. But for those of us who have confessed and repented of our sins, not for those of us who have lived perfectly, because if that was the case, nobody here would take the Lord's Supper.
But for those of us who have confessed and repented of our sins and who are walking in fellowship with the Lord, then we can gladly and joyfully celebrate what Christ has done to make us ready for His coming. So we, I'll pray, and then uh, Brian and Melissa are going to serve you this morning, and we, will, uh, and we will partake of the Lord's Supper. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that all of the just wrath that was due against us was poured out on Him, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will be saved from wrath. Lord, because of this, because of Your sacrifice, we can greatly anticipate, and we call that to memory today, as the body broken and the blood shed for us. As we see the body broken, and we see the blood shed, as we partake of the body broken, and we partake of the blood shed for us, we rejoice in the God of our salvation. And we rejoice as we anticipate the day of your return. And we say together with one another in joy, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus.